Let's pray. Father, we ask that what we just sang would be a prayer that's true of our hearts. That you would give us eyes to see, faith to hear, hearts and minds that can comprehend what you have for us from your word. Encourage your people this morning. Center us. Attach us afresh to the core, our core identity as disciples of Jesus. Speak to us through your word and encourage your church. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. As you're doing there, you can grab your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at only two verses today. uh, Verses 49 and 50 of Luke chapter 9. I also count it as a a kind providence of God that today, this Sunday, has been designated Church Planting Sunday by our Church Planting Network, Acts 29. If you don't know this, River City Church is a member of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. Now we know that the book of Acts ends with 28 chapters. And the reason for the name, Acts 29, is that the forward momentum of the gospel, as you're reading through Acts... The gospel crosses over cultural and socioeconomic and geopolitical boundaries, and it continues. Forward movement. And so, in a sense, we are participating in that legacy of gospel expansion. In the network's own words, Acts 29 says this, it's, Acts 29 is a diverse global family of church-planting churches characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. And this pairs well with our mission and vision as a local church. Our mission as a local church, River City, is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel. And our vision to carry out that disciple-multiplying mission, we desire to birth a movement of reproducing disciples and, by extension, reproducing churches. It's a central theology around Jesus Christ and his gospel brought to bear in discipleship relationships for the purpose of multiplication, multiplying more disciples and more churches. That's the the hope. Acts 29 also has five core distinctives. You can find them on their website. And we have links to some of that on ours as well. But number five is the one I want to highlight today. As a network, we embrace this uh, distinctive as a church, but we embrace a missionary understanding of the local church and its role as the primary means by which God chooses to establish his kingdom on earth. This fifth distinctive is the one that kind of providentially lines up with our text for today. To quote the 20th century missiologist and author Johannes Blau, he says this, A theology of mission cannot be other than a theology of the church. As the people of God, called out of the world, placed in the world, and sent to the world. Theology of mission cannot be other than a theology of the church. And so here's why I say this is providential. As a church, we desire to multiply not just ourselves, or our brand, if you will, We desire that the gospel of Jesus and the message of his kingdom would multiply in and among us and in our city 
and in our state and across the upper Midwest and all across the globe. The message of the redeeming power of Jesus to rescue and save as our central hope. We want to preach and promote his gospel in our words and in our actions. Making disciples of Jesus. Reproducing ourselves as disciples and by extension, reproducing leaders and small group communities and ultimately churches. The goal is gospel expansion. And we believe that discipleship through the local church is the best way to accomplish the goal of bringing the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people. And we will spend ourselves as a church participating in and supporting that end. So I want us to have that in our minds as we look at our text today. Last week in Luke's gospel, we saw Jesus beginning to teach his disciples that life in the kingdom operates a little differently than life according to the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus presses in on their pride and welcomes them into the way of humility. Today, we will see Jesus pressing on a too narrow view, from the sake of the disciples, of work in the kingdom of God. The disciples are drawing lines in wrong places, and Jesus' correction of them helps expand their vision of what participation in the kingdom and proclamation of the gospel is supposed to look like. And it's helpful for us, because like the disciples, we can draw the right lines in the wrong places as well. But Jesus sets the stage for what unity in the kingdom can look like in pursuit of this gospel expansion. So let's read our text from today, Luke chapter 9, just two verses, verses 49 and 50. This comes on the heels of Jesus teaching the disciples who's greatest in the kingdom. For the one who is last among you all is the one who is great. Then verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And I pull two big ideas from this text. One is drawing lines and specifically drawing the right lines, and two, kingdom unity for kingdom work. Let's look at the first one, verse 49. It's John who speaks up this time. Typically the one who speaks up is Peter, often because Peter seems to have the shortest distance between his brain and his mouth. And yet, in this case, it's John, who subsequently is the one, as John writes in his gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, right? John writes, John's the one who speaks up and now says, Master, teacher, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. So apparently there's a guy who's praying for people who are being oppressed by demonic forces. He's praying for them in Jesus' name. He is casting them out. So he's apparently successfully freeing people from spiritual bondage. And John's response is, we tried to stop him. Why? Because he does not follow with us. See, John here draws a line. Who's this guy? We don't know this guy. He isn't one of us twelve. Now, this is particularly interesting because just a few verses before, starting in verse 37 of, of Luke chapter 9, 
we see the disciples trying and failing to free a young boy from demonic oppression. They were unable to cast out a demon, and Jesus has to step in and bring freedom to that boy. And here, an outsider to the twelve is doing what they failed to do. Tie that together with the interaction we had last week with the verses right before this one on the topic of pride and who is the greatest in the kingdom. And it's not much of a stretch to think that maybe, perhaps maybe, there's some of the angst that's coming out of John here is that this guy, whoever this is, is having success compared to the failure of the disciples. It looks bad for them. It could be that some of this is envy, which is just the sin of pride that wears the cloak of entitlement. Envy might be creeping in here. There might be some territorial jealousy. However, we really don't know. We should always be careful in assuming the worst motives of the disciples. It's often when we read this, we're like, man, those guys are dumb. How could they not get this? But can I caution you as you're reading through the Gospels to not put yourself as the outsider looking in at the stupid decisions of the disciples, but put yourself in their sandals because so often we're dumb. Just just a little exegetical when you're reading the Bible. Put yourself in their shoes and you're like, oh, I guess this is accurate of me. Because the reality is there's really no indication from the text that John is insinuating, well, he would rather have someone stay in bondage than have it done by the wrong person. He's not really saying that, at least we can't infer that he is. John could be genuinely concerned for Jesus' name and reputation. I mean, who knows who might use or misuse the name of Jesus for their own personal gain. It doesn't take a historian to look back in our own human history for not very far Many people have tried to trade on the name of Jesus. Many people have defended terrible and awful things in the name of Christ. So it could be just as likely that John is wisely cautious, that his concern is valid. But it doesn't change where John, in this case, kind of faultily draws the line. And I want to be super clear here. I don't think that lines and delineations and definitions are bad. In fact, I think they're very helpful, provided they're biblically defined and not merely humanly defined. And we'll get to that here more in a moment. Because the reality is we all draw lines, right? The question for us is, what are the factors that help us determine where boundary lines should be drawn? How do we determine who's in and who's out according to different categories and in different circumstances? That's a question we need to wrestle with. For example, I need to pay a fee And then I get a little card that tells me and the person standing at the entrance and the exit door that I'm in at Costco. This little card here proves it. We pay for the executive membership because we can't not spend $200 when you go to Costco. If anyone knows how to go to Costco and walk out with a smaller bill than $200, come talk to me. I need your secrets. Right? Maybe we get a little bit back at the end of the year. How does someone know I'm in at Costco? I show them my card. Right? How do people know that I'm a Vikings fan? Because every January I make an appointment to see a counselor to deal with my crushing defeat and disappointment and to deal with my apparent insanity that somehow doing the same things will produce a different result. That is the definition of insanity. Hashtag faith, right? Like, but on a more serious note, how do we know the people to whom we are accountable? 
Who's responsible for chasing you or me down if we're running from the discipline of the Lord? Well, it's these elders at River City Church. It's the people I'm covenantally committed to. I listen to these fellow elders and they care for me and you. Why? Well, because I'm a member here. And who are those for whom I will have to give an account before God for how I cared and shepherded them? I have to give an account to the Lord for my faithfulness in shepherding the members of this local body, the flock that God has put under our care as elders. The question isn't, should we draw lines? The question is, how do we rightly draw them? That's the first thing we get from this text, drawing the right lines. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we look at the second part, which is the emphasis that Jesus puts on unity in the kingdom. It seems like a generic critique from John, that this other guy just isn't one of us. It's his big problem. He's not one of us. Now, he might be part of the larger crowd of disciples that have been following Jesus around, but he doesn't have his one of the twelve membership cards. And yet Jesus' response is interesting. Look at verse 50. But Jesus says to him, to John, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Essentially, Jesus is saying, this guy is on your team. See, Jesus doesn't correct John for drawing a line at all, but Jesus draws a line as well. He just draws it in a different place. Essentially, Jesus is saying, is this guy working against you? If the answer is no, then he is with you. And I don't think Jesus is being wishy-washy here like, hey, we all believe kind of close enough, right? Can I'll just get along? No, no. He's drawing a clear line. See, this man isn't just doing good deeds, casting out demons in someone else's name or his own name. He's doing it in Jesus' name. Jesus, then, is drawing a line using his own name, himself. He's where the line should be drawn. Not as some arbitrary membership in the 12 disciples. Now, as an aside, what it means to do something or pray in Jesus' name, that's an entirely other sermon. But in short, it's this. You can kind of understand it this way. Working or praying that is submissive and in the power and authority of Jesus. His name holds sway over the kingdom of darkness, not ours. His name has power over principalities and sickness, not ours. Not our words, not our wills, but Jesus. That's the 50,000-foot brief overview of praying and working in Jesus' name. See, Jesus is drawing a line, if you will, not at the line of the disciples, but himself. Because I think generic calls for unity for its own sake are weak and ineffectual. They tend to fall apart. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm speaking about unity around something solid and concrete and definable, specifically someone. Namely, unity around the person and work of Jesus. Jesus teaches something similar in Luke chapter 11. He's again teaching in the context of spiritual warfare and casting out demons. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 11. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the corrective or counterpoint or balance, if you will. It's consistent with Luke 9.50 especially if Jesus himself and his name is where the line should be drawn, right? If you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not against me, you're with me. 
See, John wants to draw the line around the 12 disciples. We have a shared experience, Jesus. We've been doing this for, with you. We've been with you for a long time. And that might be helpful to know where the small group is, but not who's in the larger group. We'll read in just a couple of weeks in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus doesn't just send out 12 to pray for the sick and announce the kingdom. He sends out 72. 72 is 60 more than 12, by the way. I'm the line is what Jesus seems to be implying here. This is what I meant when I said earlier that I think lines, boundaries, are very helpful when they are biblically defined. In this case, the point, the starting point is Jesus. In fact, a central theme that runs through the entire New Testament is the unity that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter our national allegiance, our economic background, our political affiliations, our ethnicity, the gospel unites believers in one faith. Now, we don't have time to fully go there today. That's an, there's another sermon. But like the conversation we began last week in confronting our pride, we can, as believers in Jesus, I believe, find a way through disagreement, through disunity, and through divisive issues when and only when we focus on our core shared belief in Jesus Christ and rally around the mission of gospel proclamation. That's how we will find our way through disagreement and division. Now, this is not meant, meant to be a simplistic band-aid, like just slap Jesus on complex issues and call it good. I'm not saying that. But it is making sure that we are not missing the forest for the trees, that we are keeping our central focus on Christ and his gospel while we deal with the nuance of the needs around us, while we work through societal issues and challenges, and while we wrestle out theological distinctions. It is Jesus who unites specifically around his person and work. Is the kingdom of God invading is the true gospel of Jesus being preached? Are sinners being called to repentance? Are they finding hope and healing in the blood of Jesus shed for them? Are disciples of Jesus, not disciples of men or disciples of an ideology, are disciples of Jesus multiplying? If so, it's in line with the mission of Jesus. See, Paul has an interesting reaction to a similar but even more complex situation. To the church in uh, Philippi, church, uh, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment for, for the gospel, for preaching and proclaiming Christ, is an encouragement to the church to be more bold in preaching and proclaiming Christ. That's just awesome on its face. Look at verse 15. Some indeed, Paul says, some indeed, who are bold in speaking, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There are some who are preaching the gospel in order to inflict pain on Paul. I, I don't know all that that entails, but then Paul says this, what then? 
Some of their motives are bad motives. What then, Paul says? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Did you get that? Some people are preaching the gospel of Christ to make Paul look bad. And Paul says, well, if they're preaching the gospel, if people are truly hearing the message of Jesus, I'm less concerned with their motivations and I rejoice. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus saying, don't stop him. See, as we work together in the kingdom of God, we need to fight to keep the door open to partnership in the kingdom and ministry in the name of Jesus as wide as we can, while at the same time making sure that we aren't holding the door open in such a way that thieves and wolves can get in and destroy the flock. Don't get me wrong in this. We need to defend against false views of Jesus. If we're really going to rally around Jesus, then we need to know who this is. The reformer, John Calvin, said this, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. If Jesus isn't the eternal son of God, if Jesus isn't fully God and fully man, then it's a different Jesus, period. If Jesus' death isn't sufficient to pay for our sin, if we are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we contribute to our salvation by our own works in any way, then that is a different gospel. We're not giving a pass to false teaching and unbiblical theology. We strive to not draw lines where we ought not, and we strive to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, drawing the right lines in the right places. Here at River City, we talk about our theological and doctrinal positions and distinctives like this. There are things that are essential. These things are primary. These are the core Orthodox Christian beliefs. To believe them is to be a Christian. The tri-unity of God. The full divinity and full humanity of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. The authority, sufficiency, and necessity of God's word passed down and preserved to us, revealed to us for our good. These things are essential. They're primary. Christians across all time and space can say, yes, these are the things we hold together. There are also some things that are secondary. They're important, but not essential. Important distinctives that we hold as a church, but we also know that Christians in good conscience can disagree with them and still be Christians. We can still all be in the family together. Things like the manner and mode of baptism, complementarian theology and practice, or a reformed Calvinistic, if you will, soteriology, the, the theology around how God saves people. See, we as a local church have positions and strongly held ones in these categories, but we hold them humbly, knowing that other true brothers and sisters in the kingdom might hold different positions. These are important to us, but they're not essential. And then there are things that we consider non-essential. These are things we're not going to fight over. Some people might fight over them. We're not going to fight over them. These include manner of dress when you come to corporate worship or, or what instruments are acceptable. Right? By the way, I love the drums. Go, Sam. Or how you should school your kids. Or convictions around the consumption of alcohol. Now, we may have personal convictions in these areas, but we will not fight over them in the church or in the kingdom. 
Think of it like this. Essential things are are things all Christians believe. Important things are the things we share together in this local church. And non-essential are our personal convictions. And we need to be careful not to lump everything non-essential into the bucket together. That's not helpful. And we need to be reminded that important and non-essential things do have implications for essential things. Again, this doesn't mean they're not important. I bring this up because I want to be clear what I'm not saying as much as what I am saying. I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter. I am saying that it's okay that doctrine both unites us and divides us at times, provided those lines are helpful and it's incumbent upon us to make sure we are clear on primary and secondary doctrine. So Jesus tells John, if he's not against you, he's for you. And Jesus also says, if anyone's not with me, they're against me. See, Jesus is just drawing a line. He's just drawing it in the right place. So for us, what does it look like? What does drawing the right lines, pursuing kingdom unity for kingdom work, have to do with where I started at the beginning, talking about multiplication, specifically church planting, in our church, in our city, and beyond? First, as we look here at our church, I'm struck with the reality that we need each other. The body is a body when all the parts are working together. Hands and feet and ears and eyes. And we believe that the scripture is clear that each of us has a role in the body. In the church. Not just as observers. Not just as attenders. Not even just participants. But co-laborers in the work of gospel advancement. Specifically, that means discipleship. So we order ourselves around this shared mission of making disciples. It's one of the reasons why we're kind of obnoxious about community groups. We we don't... saw some people nod their heads up when I said that just now. The reason we are is not because we think we've figured out the best way to practice biblical community and no other way is good. That's not true. But but in our expression of wanting to make disciples, we think that the long-term trajectory of life on life and time in God's Word and time not just around a meal, but sharing together our burdens and our hopes and our fears and our cares might be a way, just might be a way, where long-term we can grow as followers of Jesus, sharpening one another, making disciples, pouring into one another. And then as those groups kind of expand and grow They have to multiply because not everyone fits in my living room anymore, right? They have to. See, as a local church, we will draw lines on essential and important issues, and in everything else, we will strive for humility and unity. Notice, I did not say uniformity. Unity. In fact, being able to be unified in the essentials gives us freedom in the non-essentials. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul says, complete my joy of being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul's writing this to a local church. So we mutually submit to one another. We hold ourselves and one another accountable to our shared confessions. We work together that we might be effective in carrying out the mission of disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. We do this together. That the gospel might be a work among us and go out from us. And we willingly work together to that end. I'm deeply encouraged 
that over the last 12 to 18 months, the Lord, in the midst of a pandemic, the Lord has increased our membership here at River City as part of a local church by like 30%. Okay. God's doing something among us in uniting us together around shared vision and mission and purpose. And by his grace, he will continue to grow us to the point where we can't help but multiply. That's in our church. In our, in our city, you'll hear about this if you've ever come to one of our membership classes. Shameless plug, this afternoon, 2.30, if you're interested in membership or you just like to know more about it, come back. 2.30. You can let us know you're coming or you can just show up. That's great. But we talk about it in that context where we, we cheer for the big C church, the capital C church. Like Paul, we want to rejoice wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached and disciples of Jesus are being made. Wherever it is. Even if it's a different flavor than we are. J.C. Ryle challenged me this week. I was reading his commentary on Luke's gospel on this passage. And he said this, and it was a good heart check for me. He said, we forget that no individual church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom. And that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we'd like. We must try to believe that men may be true-hearted followers of Jesus Christ and yet for some wise reason may be kept back from seeing all things in religion just as we do. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he might belong. See, there's a handful of other churches in this town that we regularly pray for and wholeheartedly celebrate people joining those churches. Don't get me wrong. I like the distinctives of River City. I like us. Philosophically and theologically, we, I hold them closely and in high regard, the things that make us us. There's a reason we are who we are. And I'm unapologetic and enthusiastic about those things that make us us as a local church and a local group of elders and community groups, and disciples. And if you're here sharing in that this morning, I'm grateful and excited for the ministry possibilities in front of us as a local church. And I celebrate other places here in our city where Christ is being preached. There are a variety of different flavors of Baptists. There are evangelical free churches and some more charismatic non-denominational churches. There's a PCA church plant that's begun in the last about two years that is growing here in our city. There are a handful of Lutheran churches in our town where I know the gospel of Jesus is preached, and so I celebrate that. And we pray that those churches would be faithful and fruitful in gospel advancement and in disciple making. Do we want to go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint here in our city? Then we're going to do it together through our multiplying of community groups, the planting of more churches, and the partnership we share in one faith. And finally, what about outside of our own city? When we set out to launch River City, the, the goal was make disciples and plant churches. We launched in 2009 as a local church. In 2017, we launched out River City Southwest, and in 2019, they became a fully independent as Grace City Church. In 2019, we also regrouped a little as a church and began to pursue areas of health, 
in the development and assessment of new elders, training community group leaders, and asking for us, God, what do you have next for us as a church? And out of that time of prayer came many things, and one of them was to plant the church every five years. Why can't that be our goal? I thank Charlie for that. I think you actually, well, I'm just saying. I didn't, he didn't know I was going to point at him. But how do we do that? Because that doesn't happen by accident. I think being completely honest, it was far too easy for us after planting a church to lean back in our chairs a little bit and kind of go, oh, we did it. Let's put our feet up, crack open a cold one and just enjoy. But I think it, what it showed in us is maybe we got a little too comfortable. To use a blacksmithing analogy, which just gives a little insight as to the YouTube channels that my kids and I watch together. I think it's taken a season of going through fire to help get the metal back up to an operating temperature so it can be worked again. See, we can't just be okay with planting a church, doing it once, patting ourselves on the back, and then just taking a knee and run out the clock. We are still called to make disciples and plant churches. So one way to get us back into that rhythm is celebrating and refocusing our efforts in partnerships with others who are doing the work of church planting. So we not only celebrate Grace City, that's meeting down in the southwest part of town. We celebrate that there are NAB churches being planted in Mandan and Bismarck. That there is a Southern Baptist church who's a part of Acts 29 also being planted in Bismarck. We celebrate that. We pray for them and we look for ways to partner together for gospel advancement. Further, we've felt the Holy Spirit stirring in us as a team a responsibility to serve in equipping and sending here in the upper Midwest, for those who are pursuing ministry and missions as pastors and missionaries and planters. We'd talked about it for years, but didn't really have much of a plan. So, this last year, we brought on a young man named Mitch Friedman, who is currently our guinea pig as a pastoral intern. It's a picture of Mitch and his wife Abby and Juniper on the screen here. Mitch is studying and learning and praying toward the end goal of perhaps planting, or maybe even serving as a pastor in a rural church context in our region. Helping the local church work toward gospel expansion. Making disciples and planting new churches. We're working and finalizing some of the details of a more formalized leadership and theological training initiative. Pastor Devin's been putting a ton of work into this. Intending to further equip men and women for more formal leadership roles inside and outside of the church. We're talking and praying with others in our region about the places where God might be calling us to support and send church planters and core teams and resources so that new works of disciple-making can begin. And, and those that might have grown cold for a season might be reignited. We're asking you as the, our church family to commit to pray with us so that we might hear from the Holy Spirit together as a church where God would have us spend our energy and send our resources for gospel advancement and for His glory. Not to replicate a brand, but so that the gospel of Jesus, that the message of the kingdom of God would multiply in us and among us, in our city, in our state, and all across the globe. See, this brief interaction here between Jesus and John is a reminder that He... He is the central anchor point for our faith. That the gates of hell don't shake at our names, but at His. 
And so we celebrate the advancement of the gospel and the work of the kingdom in Jesus' name wherever we see it for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are at work doing far more than we can even ask or imagine. You are at work uh, expanding your kingdom and making your name known. We can see just a fraction of it. Would you freshly anchor our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, to your truth? That, that our, our faith might be sure and strong. And that it actually would be from this deep conviction of you, that humility and a kingdom perspective on what unity looks like together in the body would grow. Would you help us? Would you encourage us? Would you continue to work in us and then send us for your name to be known? Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.